Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to go silent with Oscar Michaud. That was a great joke. <laughs> you know, he, he didn't plan that in advance. That just came out. Was it difficult for you not to laugh when you uh, heard no, the joke? No, it was because I know, like any good scene partner, I know like I know my cues. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I didn't make eye contact with you because I didn't want to give the bit. I didn't make eye contact because I was so ashamed. <laughs> 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 so Oscar Michaud is often credited as one of the first great American black directors. There were several black directors before him, but mm. he was the first one to make a really successful movie. And he's also, his film uh, Within Our Gates is the earliest existing movie that we have that hasn't been lost uh, by a by a black filmmaker, feature length. And he's credited often as a revolutionary but at the same time uh you know his movies are historically important but they're not very good well some of them are very good yes and others of them are very interesting he's been called everything from the jackie robinson of, of cinema he's been called the black dw griffith or the black ed wood or the black ed wood yeah. uh and definitely the big demarcation point is the silent era and the sound era mm-hmm. after the sound came in the movies and his circumstances became a little more impoverished uh, the movie is starting a little dodgier, but yes. even then they remained interesting and revealing and sometimes quite disturbing and upsetting. Now, Oscar Michaud has an amazing life. Oh, yeah. Where, like, obviously he did not set out to be a filmmaker right from the get-go. He was born in 1884 in Illinois to former Kentucky slaves who migrated north after the Civil War. And for a lot of his early years, he just did what any African-American of the time would do. He became a Pullman porter. He did odd jobs. Until he actually settled and became a farmer. Yeah, he became the the first black homesteader in South Dakota. He saved his money and over time uh, gained the respect of his white colleagues and neighbors. But he was always very frustrated that he could not get more black Americans to come and be homesteaders themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, his uh, he worshipped at the altar of Booker T. Washington, the famous black educator and public intellectual. I think Booker T. Washington founded Tuskegee University. He actually um, dedicated his first novel, The Homesteader, to Booker T. Washington. Right. And, and that novel is kind of... Uh, has a similar philosophy to Booker T. Washington's Up From Slavery, where the idea was that uh, we as a race, we got to pull ourselves up by our, our own bootstraps and we can't uh, we can't blame the whites for our problems. We also can't depend on them to get us out of them. We have to be self-reliant. And that's something that Oscar Michaud always believed in and something he was always pushing for. Like we just mentioned, he was a novelist. He wrote a lot of essays and things like that. Mm-hmm. He always kept himself busy and was always trying to push himself forward. And as much as he was an artist, a novelist, a homesteader, a filmmaker, he was also a ballyhoo man. So before he became a filmmaker and he was making, he was writing these novels, he would go from state to state, go from door to door, peddling his wares, signing yep. books. Just self-publish. Like he would print a thousand copies of, for example, The Homesteader and just sell them all himself. Yes. Yeah, so, and get the, there's no middleman in that profit. And it was sort of like, The Homesteader was sort of like a semi-autobiographical novel where he, the, the main character of it is called Oscar Devereaux. He didn't really did not stretch himself on that but it's basically his story and and like in that first novel you get like everything all the preoccupations that would haunt all of his work going forward so you've got very suspicious of the black preachers 
Uh, he thought that they were basically in cahoots with the whites to keep black people down mm-hmm. uh, and, th- and that they were selling people this idea that, well, if you if you know your place here and you stay subservient, then you'll be rewarded in the afterlife. There's also a focus on keeping black people together because the plot of the homesteader is about a black farmer who is in love with a white woman but feels he cannot marry her. Miscegenation is a recurring fascination with him. Uh, the homesteader, uh, symbol of the unconquered, his later films, so many of them have this plot where a black guy who's in love with this white woman who it turns out is actually a light-skinned black woman. So it's okay then. Yes, and then there's that big revelation towards the end and they're able to get together. The, the black lineage is established. And, I mean, he his depiction of racial borders is that they're so arbitrary, but also they're so hard to transcend. Well, his movies often kind of share this philosophy that, that the lighter black skinned people are more intelligent than the darker black skinned people. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if it's right to blame him for that or not, or if that's, or, or if that's just the way movies were, I yeah, mean, like I, a prejudice that was, in society so it was easier to portray i mean it's way. like in india where they have the caste system yeah. it's it's just so, so common and also he's had a lot of criticism over the years for his sort of booker t washington philosophy but i don't know it, we're talking about a hundred years ago <laughs> that's right i mean and as two white males <laughs> yeah that. yeah but it, it's interesting like his his values were very middle class so mm-hmm. it, yeah he was always known as the middle class filmmaker that he wanted to raise up the poorer class mm-hmm. and create product for kind of the not affluent but comfortable populace and in all of his movies the villains are gamblers alcoholics petty criminals and priests as we mentioned earlier and reverends so we should talk about within our gates which is probably his most famously known film Mm -hmm. this is a film that was made in 1919 and, and it was his second film after The Homesteader. The Homesteader was his first film based on his book, and it's now lost. But The Homesteader was kind of the first blockbuster to be directed by uh, an African-American. And his films also had a lot of problems being distributed because in places like Virginia, they would be cut to shreds mm. because of the ideas that they would go out and try to espouse. Well, you know, he made something like 30 movies. Yeah, some people say 40 movies. So. Yeah, but only about 13 of them survive and only three silent films survive. He made 25 silent movies and none of the films exist in a complete print Mm -hmm. uh, because after he died, his widow threw out all of the negatives and all of his copies of the film. So they've basically just been pieced together from whatever archives have. And we should just point out now that there was actually a restoration that was done by Kino recently uh there was a big box set mm-hmm. called um pioneers of african-american cinema which has a lot of other filmmakers too and it's very confusingly organized on netflix where you can watch uh there's a bunch of oscar michaud films including within our gates mm-hmm. but it's done by episodes for some reason oh yeah because it's filed like it's a tv show yeah, yeah. exactly yeah um so within our gates i mean it, it has a, 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 convoluted a rather plot. convoluted plot it's kind of hard to follow because in the last section of the movie is this long 20 minute flashback that also has a flashback within a flashback back but the general gist of it is there's a light-skinned black woman named sylvia who uh, takes it upon herself to uplift the race through her all-black school and she's looking for uh, white people to sponsor the school and she comes across this uh, wealthy dowager called mrs warwick who says that oh you must understand the negroes are only good as farmhands and lumberjacks you know she runs across a lot of that meanwhile there are other characters like there's old ned the preacher who's in the pockets of the southern white establishment 
and uh, we find out that Sylvia can't get married to the man that she loves because of her dark past, which it turns out is that uh, her parents were lynched after they were wrongfully accused of murdering their master. That's not that you just gave is a perfect example of a lot of Oscar Michaud films, it's that they're very convoluted in a way that I would probably describe as kind of literary convolution, that if it was written on the page, it would probably make more sense. Yeah. yeah. But as a movie, it's so much information, especially in his early silent films, thrown at you that you're like, whoa! But what really comes across in Within Our Gates are these characters who are very kind of archetypal characters. Old Ned, the reactionary preacher that who's a self-loathing black man who, at one point, after he's done talking to the white establishment, he goes into the hall and he's like, oh, I have once again failed my birthright. I will burn in hell. And then there's, in the flashback sequence, there's Ephraim, who was a slave along with uh, Sylvia. And Ephraim is the one who wrongfully accused Sylvia's parents of murdering their master, and he did it so that he could hobnob with the whites. But then it turns out when they can't find her parents immediately, they decide, oh, let's just lynch Ephraim. Yeah. Um, that ending which is, is a, so like whoa yeah it's like such such a brutal scene and you know most of the race movies at the time because Michelle was not the only African American filmmaker there were many others making these films for basically southern segregated theaters most of them were kind of these upbeat fantasy land movies where they would be set in Chicago and Harlem and they would be kind of standard genre films but starring black people so it was kind of like a fantasy image of what yeah. black life could be. But Michaud actually dealt with these topics. He forced the audience to confront these things that were difficult, but still part of their everyday lives mm-hmm. in ways that never looked away from the actual reality, the horrifying reality that it was. Yeah, uh, in the silent films, at least. Like, yes. The Symbol of the Unconquered is about, I believe it's about a black homesteader. I didn't rewatch it for this episode, but it's about a... Uh, and that's one that's famous that it's actually missing the last reel. Yeah, um, but uh, he goes up against uh, this a wealthy land baron in town uh, who is a light-skinned black man who has renounced his race. The hero, his farm uh, is built above oil and uh, the bad guy finds out and uh, the bad guy, who remember is a light-skinned black guy, decides to sick the Ku Klux Klan on him. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, his films are, not only are they filled with things like the Ku Klux Klan, but they're also filled with these kind of self- loathing black characters i think that oscar michaud does make a good point of comparison to dw griffiths who was making movies at the same period as he was mm-hmm. where, where dw griffiths is working in the big budget studio system with things like birth of a nation and intolerance mm-hmm. michaud was working with what he had and i think that's something like within our gates works so well because it does have that energy that could really only exist in the early silent films where the creators were trying to feel their way out of what worked and what doesn't. Mm. So you get a lot of stylistic um, techniques that would kind of disappear when sound came into play, which could explain why uh, Michaud's sound films are as mostly uninteresting as they are. Yeah. Because like Within Our Gates, like we said, does move very quickly, but at the same time, it is doing things like cross-cutting action and flashbacks within flashbacks. Yeah. That is something that, like... He's figuring out what works and what doesn't in this form. Some of the images are really amazing in it, like that shot of Ephraim hanging from a tree. Uh, or, you know, there's another shot where it's like a, a close-up of the rope on the tree as it as it lynches someone. Uh, I also got to watch Body and Soul, 
Um, Starring a young Paul Robeson. Yes, uh, playing a dual role as yeah. brothers. And that one I didn't like as much as Western Gates, mostly because it took a long time to tell a fairly simple story. Uh-huh. And it still had the same flashback structure that Within Our Gates had, which I kind of see the appeal for because it... What he ends up doing is not showing a dramatic moment, but only revealing it later to give context to the situation. But what's interesting about it is it, it's his longest sustained assault on religion. Well, that's all it is. Yeah. So uh, Paul Robeson plays an ex-con or an escaped convict who uh, hides as a southern preacher. And then just fools a town into giving him money, women. There is a implied rape scene yeah. in the film. And anyone who challenges him is ostracized because you can't challenge the preacher. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, which is pretty revolutionary in cinema mm-hmm. at this time. Now, in the 20s, Michaud was mostly self-financing these movies. And he made, again, like 20 or 25 movies. The Homesteader was a big hit, but this was not sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, he was also, uh, I, as I understand, a somewhat contentious figure even at the time like the the harlem renaissance people didn't have a lot of time for him you know maybe maybe his sort of like middle class philosophy was out of line with say the black intelligentsia but but like he was not exactly a darling of the black press at Mm -hmm. the time so eventually he just drove himself to bankruptcy and in the 30s making these sound films most of them were made for white financiers particularly this guy alfred sack who had a company called Sack Amusements and owned a bunch of black theaters in the South that he was basically, you know, he hired a few black filmmakers to make product for it. And so a lot of uh, Michaud's films of the 30s are kind of simplistic entertainments. Yeah, like something like God's Stepchildren, which I believe we both watched for this podcast. It does have a more simplistic story than his other films have. And in this particular case, it's inspired uh, quite literally, because its trailer says, inspired by <laughs> imitation of life. Well, I think God's Stepchildren is a really kind of... Um, I, I, I'm not even sure, sure what to call it, but it, there's something painful about it. Like, so, he, he made movies like... He made a movie called Swing uh, in the 30s. It was just kind of like a standard musical. He did a movie called 10 Minutes to Live, The, the Girl from Chicago. Yeah, the, which is like a murder mystery. Yeah, plot. but but this one... Uh, it's kind of like it has that that standard Michaud character in it, the homesteader who's made good, and he espouses his philosophy in it. But it's never been as sour as it is here. Mm-hmm. So like you see that character say to his girlfriend, "Our race is a failure because the Negro hates to think." Uh, yeah, it's it's and what, definitely from a place of absolute bitterness that he's, things are not going to get better for him at yeah. this time. And what's the movie about, though? What's the main story? Uh, the main story is that a woman adopts or is given a small child. A mixed race black child. Exactly. And you're like, oh, so this is what the plot's going to be about. But what ends up happening is the child gets in trouble, gets sent to a boarding school, and then it jumps a decade, I think. Yeah. Uh, she gets sent to a convent. That's <laughs> yeah. right. From a young age, uh, this little girl a problem child who hates her race troublemaker yeah she doesn't want to go to the black school she wants to go to the white school and she's mean to all of her black school friends so they decide well we gotta straighten out this girl send her to a convent she comes back 10 years later turns out she still hates black people yep uh meanwhile her her i guess stepbrother yeah her step her adopted brother jamie has gone on and uh made good for himself 
uh, become a homesteader. Mm-hmm. The, the the girl, her name's Naomi, she has a fiancé, but she hates him for the way he looks. <laughs> and apparently in the original version, like, we're watching a censored version. In the original version, she was even more explicit about really? it. Really? Like, about how she didn't like his bone structure and everything. Oh, like, wow. Pre- pretty heavy stuff. And the film ends with... Naomi declaring that she's going to leave the Negro race, which is very painful. Yes, it is. And the film itself is, you know, really edging on the side of barely competent. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Um, You can tell that Michaud is really struggling with the resources he has. And his story is not told with any kind of elegance. It's very blunt. Characters will say exactly what they're thinking. The silent medium can really hide a lot of flaws. Bad acting. Bad acting and bad dialogue. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, there's something about God's stepchildren. I don't even want to call it bad because it's just so... It's got so much heart. Yeah. Even if it's a, well, a, he feels, a bitter heart, you yeah, know? I, you can tell that there's passion in what he's doing. Yeah. And I think that in the best Michaud films, that's what's the most endearing thing about it, which is he's not just making these films as entertainment. He's making these films because he has to express himself some way and the ideas that he has whether we agree with them or not today. And with God's Stepchildren, when the Jamie character is talking about how our, our, our race is a failure and we need to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps or anything, like you're so conscious of the fact that Michaud, 10 years before this, had declared bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. He wasn't making independent films anymore, but but like no, no filmmaker had worked fucking harder than this guy. Yeah, and he still could not find any success. Yeah, he like no matter how hard he worked, he was not going to be able to go to 20th Century Fox and make a movie. Yeah, is there anything more frustrating than the first movie you make being the biggest success. Yeah. And so Michaud then died pretty much in poverty. Yeah, he made uh, one more film after God's Stepchildren, I think seven or eight years later, called The Betrayal, which was very much like The Homesteader. It was just another uh, story about a black homesteader made good. Uh, It's the only one of his films to be reviewed by the New York Times. Oh, what did they say? They said it was uh, amateurish, (laughs) which, you know... Yeah, okay. Maybe it was. Uh, And he died in 1951 uh, in poverty and forgotten. Yeah, which is... A shame, because like we said, his movies do have value beyond a historical one, especially stuff like Within Our Gates and Body and Soul. Yeah, um, and they're being rediscovered now. I mean, I've, there's been a much more concerted effort just in the last two or three years to make Michelle part of the canon. Mm-hmm. Well, there's like a really good autobiography written by the guy who has written every autobiography in the world, Patrick McGillan. Yeah, yeah, the Oscar Michelle, the Great and Only, it's called. And that book is actually mostly pulled from excerpts from his novels and stuff mm. like that, because his novels were so autobiographical. They're so little information about his life there are some few survivors and it's not like anybody was documenting uh, i mean the fact that we have any of his movies at all is probably a miracle this is a topic though i think we could return to at some point because you know there were a lot of other black filmmakers There, there was like spencer williams who he later became one of Amos and Andy mm-hmm. on TV. But uh, as a filmmaker, he made all of these movies like Go Down, Death, and The Blood of Jesus that were these kind of like evangelical sin and salvation dramas <laughs> that they, they'd show in black church basements. <laughs> the other side of the Michaud coin where yeah. it's like, while Michaud judges trickster priests, this guy yeah. is all about religious salvation. Or then there's uh, Herb Jeffries, who made a bunch of films for uh, Alfred Sack, I believe, the same uh, white Jewish financier who financed a lot of these films. But he, Herb Jeffries made these this series of Westerns, The Bronze Buckaroo, Two Gun Man from Harlem, uh, about black cowboys. And those movies are interesting because the casts include like Mantan Moreland and Stymie from The Little Rascals, all of these like black 
character actors who had no other place to actually act where yeah. they weren't just you yeah. know tokens and it's just sort of like it's like a bizarro world yeah it's like and, but you can find <laughs> a lot of them in that african-american pioneers box set that we talked about yeah. which is available on netflix which come on most of you have right yeah come on go go watch it but you should get actually the blu-ray set because then you get the contextualizing special features that come with it and the blu-ray has a ton of like interesting fragments like there's uh, a fragment from a newsreel from the 20s that shows oscar michaud directing mm-hmm. um which is obviously staged but it's still interesting yeah yeah <laughs> you know i know that will purchase this box set kino i don't have one feel free to send me one and yeah we'll come on it some more come on <laughs> all right so do we have any letters this week will uh do we yes yeah, we, we do, do. <laughs> that's usually your question right <laughs> our first letter is from matula juha i'm sorry if i said your name incorrectly He goes, greetings from Finland. Hi, I've had a somewhat stressful year so far, and you guys have really cheered me up. Oh, that's nice. Thank you for that. You have also introduced me to a lot of interesting stuff and reminded me of movies I've been meaning to check out forever. I would love to hear you take on Seijin Suzuki, Ishiro Honda, and Takashi Miike, from whom I've seen few movies that I really like, but whose work I'm not that familiar with. And Achitapong Weirharsetikal. And Jean-Claude Van Damme, who both are very You know near how to dear. pronounce that. <laughs> who are both very near and dear to me. Keep up the good work. All the best, Yuha Matula. It's crazy we haven't done Van Damme yet. We did talk about Van Damme a little bit in the Steven Seagal episode. Okay. I believe in the back matter of that episode. Um, we're actually going but, to... Well, he's going to get an episode at Definitely. some point. Definitely, yeah. Um, we actually have a second letter. Shocking, I know. And this one is from Elmer M. He goes... Dear Justin and Will, a few months ago I discovered your podcast, and I have been an avid listener ever since. I really enjoy listening to you talk about all these unknown directors whom I would have never heard of otherwise. For instance, due to your recommendations, I actually watch Edgar G. Ulmer's Detour, and as an added bonus, I can pretend to be an expert on all these obscure filmmakers without ever having seen any of their movies. I just want to say, they're not that obscure. <laughs> yeah. Like what, Francis Ford Coppola? <laughs> but but I, I'm glad he watched Detour. That's like the yeah. second person who's that, told us that they've watched Detour, That's right? amazing. That's my good deed for the year. Um, anyways, I work in an independent movie theater in Amsterdam, Holland, called Criterion. Yes, you have at least one listener in the Netherlands. Hell yeah. It is a remarkable place that is entirely run by students from the programming to the toilets and has been since just after the Second World War. We'd like to make our own podcast about some of the special screenings we have, and I thought I'd ask my favorite podcast team about some advice. So, without further ado, what do you enjoy most about a podcast? Do you have any tips from your own experience? Oh, what do you enjoy most about a podcast? The thing I like the most about a podcast is a conversational tone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do not like the podcasts that are very heavily edited and have like musical clips and dialogue stuff that come in. I'm actually going to say personally, I don't really like dialogue coming into a podcast because I usually find it goes too long. And I'm like, yeah, I know the movie you're talking about. Like, so not, not a fan of the Michael and Us <laughs> podcast is what you're trying to say. No, I. this is only my personal likes is that the conversational tone especially if people that kind of know the subject and are friends in some kind of way or can appear friendly is the most important thing i like to hang out with the host if you yeah will. definitely and that's kind of intangible isn't it mm-hmm. but if i'm giving advice along those lines it would be like don't stress out like have a conversation don't worry so much about that uh, invisible third person in the room yeah just you know just discuss is the probably the biggest uh, advice i can give and even if you're picking topics that you want to talk about, don't be too specific on them. Mm-hmm. Like, 
talk about like a bunch of stuff at the same time. Even so, though, it, like it helps to go in kind of knowing what you want to talk about, having like a rough game plan, even if yes. it's just like five points. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's probably like me and Will. We actually, when we record, we don't write like topics or anything like that. We just go into it. But that also comes from the fact that we've been doing this a long time. Yeah. Sometimes we have notes. Yeah. And it allows us to like, we know like we're going to talk about intro we're gonna talk about the person's life we're gonna go into the first movie mm-hmm. and then we're gonna talk about general and then go into the second movie sure we don't have this like concrete but that's the general idea that and i have. think we're able to fake uh, congeniality pretty well i mean <laughs> we in, hate each other i mean in real life i am suing you uh <laughs> but <laughs> for all the nudes that i distributed over the internet <laughs> yeah i mean it's just disgraceful but i mean that's not for this forum and he also writes p.s I'd like to organize an event about no-budget cinema as an excuse to show Detour on the big screen. Oh, hell, hell yeah. Hell yeah. Any re- recommendations for other movies to go with? Uh, so if I'm thinking of movies from the general milieu of Detour, I would think of a movie like, uh, well, Gun Crazy is an obvious one yeah. by uh, Joseph H. Lewis. Uh, Great an- movie. Another kind of like uh, low-budget film noir uh, movie. If uh, maybe uh, a little bit different, but still kind of in the same fringe of Hollywood, uh, why not try Edwards Glen or Glenda, mm-hmm. which is uh, popularly considered a bad movie, but is another kind of low budget poverty row production that is clearly the work of, of an auteur and has a mad, passionate intensity to it uh, and is a crowd pleaser. Yeah. When I read this question, my mind automatically went to the low budget cinema that I really enjoy. Um, which is kind of like late 80s, early 90s stuff. Like even something as simple as like El Mariachi, which was on a $7,000 budget. But as Will pointed out when I mentioned this to him, that may be too much whiplash for your audience. Yeah, El Mariachi and Detour. But you could also go not necessarily low budget, but more into the neo-noir that was really popular in the early 90s. Even something as simple as like Blood Simple or Mm. the films that uh, John Stahl made, like The Last Seduction and Red Rock West. Especially Red Rock West has that Detour kindish feeling Mm. of it's a man trapped in a situation he can't control and stars Nicolas Cage so you can get people in the door and hey if you want to stick to the detour theme why not try the black cat his uh only hollywood studio movie starring bella lugosi and boris Karloff. what about the remake of detour that was made in the 90s (laughs) (laughs) which stars the uh tom neal's son yeah (laughs) yep that's right Uh, or if you want something almost literally on the same plane you could go with something like um the bonnie parker story which was directed by william whitney hmm. another edgar g ulmer like figure who made a bunch of like low budget exploitation films that had a lot of imagination and drive to them this isn't a movie i'm recommending for this double bill but i just want to say that uh this week i watched murder is my beat by edgar g ulmer it was one i'd never seen and i was like struck with this feeling like I can't believe there's an Edgar G. Elmer movie called Murder Is My Beat. That you haven't seen. Yeah, like, well, how have I not got to that? So I watched it, and I enjoyed it. Now, Justin, are you, do you mean to tell me we have a third letter? Yes, we do, Will. Good I God. Am- like, we're blown- We're like a real podcast now. <laughs> we have people... Uh, somebody said that we helped them during a hard time. We've turned two people onto Detour. Yeah, we're we programming a, th- a cinema in the Netherlands we now. A, we have a third letter. This is, this is great. I mean, did we get tricked to just advertise the cinema on this podcast? I, I honestly don't think... <laughs> 
he's like, listen, how can I get people to talk about this cinema? Can I just say that if you're in the Netherlands, by all means, go to the Criterion. <laughs> yeah, it, sa- right. it sounds great. They're showing Detour. Criterion, if you want it's me and Will to host a screening. Yeah, fly us up. Yeah, fly us up. Put us in a hotel. <laughs> I would love we to. Don't even, you don't even need to pay us a fee. Yeah. We're good. We're good for that. We love our Netherlands listeners. We love all our foreign listeners. We've had several letters. This is fucking amazing. A, a, a paper in Belgium wrote about us. <laughs> That's crazy. Yes, yeah. it is. So this letter is from Sean O'Keefe. He goes, I'd drop you five bucks if I wasn't broke as shit. (laughs) Hey, fellas. Just wanted to say thanks for a great podcast. Every episode's a winner so far. Well, that sounds like a threat. Wow, wait till you hear this one. (laughs) Can't remember which one it was, but a while back, Will mentioned having an idea for a book. For what it's worth, if you wrote it, I'd buy it. And Justin, as a fellow indie filmmaker, I appreciate your passion and subsequent unbridled rage at the same old self-congratulatory cannibalistic circle jerk that is government funding. I'd like to point out that he does not say he will buy my movie. (laughs) Okay, that's true. Justin has actually made a thing that you can buy, and that's really nice of him to say. I'm just saying that if he can't afford the five bucks for the Patreon, will he afford the thirty bucks for the book? Probably not. Plus shipping. I don't yeah. know. But no ebook, right? You need to write but, read a paper and yeah, hands. yeah. But uh, I'm gonna hold you to that promise when I write a book. You should dedicate it to him. You better have bought this book, James O'Keefe. And I have to say, I'm a little leery about this uh, this bashing of government funding that's happening. Um, has this become a, a right wing reactionary podcast now? No, I don't think so. I, I don't. Did I really bash government funding that much? I, I think we think... bashed the movies that came out of it. Yeah, that's right. I think yeah. the government funding though is very important, especially in Canada. It just it could be distributed a little differently. And by that, to, I mean to, to Justin. Me. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and if I become an old stogie of government funding and get my movies funded every year, ah, what are you gonna do, right? The system's broken. Yeah, yeah. I was like, you know, twelve million dollars for gunless out of our, <laughs> out of our tax dollars. It's it's this kind of thing that makes me want to vote for uh, Kevin O'Leary. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! I'm glad that everybody listening that's on Canada is like, what are they talking about? <laughs> I'm I'm kidding. I'm a hardline democratic socialist. If you're interested in adding a couple of decent titles to your Australian film shelf, Andrew Dominic's Chopper and John Hillcoat's The Proposition would sit nicely alongside Crocodile Dundee's (laughs) 1, 2, and God Help Me 3. I forgot that. I'm uh, glad he mentioned Crocodile Dundee (laughs) because I was going to. Anywho, just wanted to say thanks for a great show and looking forward to the upcoming Jackie Chan episode, which is definitely coming soon, right? Yep, episode 100. Yep. You wouldn't dangle a candy bar in front of a fat kid and not deliver. I'm expecting a Chan-fueled trigger rush that sees my leg amputated from diabetes-related complications. Well, that's a lot of uh, guilt to put on, on yeah, my conscience. Yeah, this got real real. Uh, I, yeah, but y- you will definitely get some Chan in the within the next year. I've noticed these things always end in a question, which is how we prefer it, or suggestion. But honestly, I've got nothing. Do you like stuff? Thanks, Sean. I like lots of stuff. We have 60 plus episodes of stuff that I like. <laughs> and stuff that we don't like. Yeah, Can that's... you tell which one it is? What are some things you like? Um, uh, I like books. I like movies. I like uh, the uh, how the, the sun, the sun as, it, as it shines upon a lover's uh, at, as she <laughs> as wakes up. you're looking up. through the window, like a rear window style situation. Yeah, yeah. You think they could remake Rear Window now and like X-rated? I'm sure there was tons of pornos like that, right? Is that uh, the probably. voyeuristic idea? Yeah, is... yeah, probably. What? Can, but in terms of stuff I like, what can I say? I, I have a Falstaffian appetite for 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 wine, <laughs> and women, and song. Size. Yeah, so, yeah. I feel like me and Will throughout this podcast have kindly defined who we are. I'm the intellectual who likes <laughs> slow cinema and things like that. Will is more of the dummy character, the jester, if you will. 
Yeah, you know when I uh, when I'm done with a hard day at the factory, uh, I like to I like to pop some corn. I like to get get the old hot dog in my other hand, some uh, an extra large jumbo can of soda, put my feet up and enjoy the latest uh, film from the uh, ha- Happy Madison Company, <laughs> right. Sandy Wexler. Did you hear that like those films have like eight billion views or something like that on Netflix? I mean, why wouldn't they? I mean, they're they're always on the top page yeah. of. And uh, they're exactly the sort of thing that you would watch when you're making dinner or folding laundry. Yeah. That's why they do a lot of stand-up comedy, too. It's because you don't have to look at the screen. I mean, I did just watch, like, three Isaac Florentine films back-to-back yesterday. Oh, are they on Netflix? No, I just have copies of them. Okay. And, uh, you know, there's nothing more kind of stimulating for the mind than those, like, films like Special Forces, U.S. Seals 2. Or close range. I have to admit, I'm relatively unfamiliar with the work of Isaac Florentine, so I have to get on that. I believe we talked about him in the Steven Seagal episode again. Ah, so if okay. you want to hear who that is, go listen to that episode. In fact, just listen to our entire... Yeah, it'll, it's good for a road trip, good for whatever. So, what are we doing next week, Will? Uh, Saijun Suzuki. Yep. Uh, the Japanese filmmaker, most fam- famous for Branded to Kill and Tokyo Drifter. And who was recommended to us by one of our uh, listeners this week. Yeah, we're just throwing you guys a bone. Like, maybe if you recommend something, we could do it just the next episode. It's through the looking glass. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You, and, you, this person made a uh, quantifiable difference in the world. That's right. Yeah, it's like the butterfly, um, right? Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, he yeah. flapped so, his wings and we're doing a podcast. Possibly they've done lots of other things too, but like... <laughs> I, I don't know, on their gravestone, they're probably going to write like, gave subject for Important Cinema Club. Yeah. Um, so we're probably... Somebody else had to win a contest for us to do Mike Lee. <laughs> this this person just... Well, he was on my list, right? It's, yeah, like we wanted to do side Mike Suzuki. Lee was more like, our arm was behind our back <laughs> and, uh, and did it. So we're going to be doing Tokyo Drifter and another one of his films. We yeah, decided who yet. knows? Yeah, we're going to watch Brandon to Kill and all that stuff. Sure. There's actually not that much written about him, like academically. I think I found one book. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting what we can discover for a director that's often considered mostly style over substance. Yeah, I don't know his work that well. I've only seen one of his films, so let's get on this. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to send us letters at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. Questions, comments, suggestions, maybe we'll take it. Yeah. But you better have a question. Make us there. dance for you. <laughs> Until then, my name is Justin the Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So have you watched any of the MST3K revival on Netflix? Of course I have. Uh, I've watched a few episodes. Uh, I was really into it right when it came out, watched a bunch, and then went, I'll get back to it later. Uh, Well, yeah, because it's not like it's like a serialized thing where you have to, like, find out what happened. I want to know why Gypsy keeps coming down and dropping something off. (laughs) Uh, The head writer, Elliot Kalin, said that will be revealed in the second season. Oh, interesting. Because what we want from MST3K is some kind of serialization. Yeah. I I watched the first episode. I liked it. Um, I will get back to it at some point. You know what's weird about it it actually made me a little it made me go back and watch more episodes of the old msc3k it than, it, really? than, the, than the new one well it's because like i think they did a good job with the first episode that i saw but uh like it's as good as it can be for something like this it's super funny you know it's got good skits and everything but made me want to go back to that old public access flavor you so, don't think that this one has that public access flavor it has it to the extent that it can but still be like a, a big Netflix production. Mm. Like, it, it captures the spirit, the, the tone. Oh, man, the cameos but, on it. These celebrity cameos are so lame. Like, I'm Jerry sure, Seinfeld yeah. shows up one. It's like, ugh. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, as someone who was never a huge uh, MST3K fan as a kid, I think we talked, we did a whole episode yeah, yeah, on MST3K. Yeah. It's, I find it's very, very funny. Uh, some of the riffs happen before the shot happens in the movie, which is unacceptable. Interesting. Uh, but, 
as long as they keep it up, like the riffs up, that's fine by me. Some people said that it's too fast. I got a bit of that sense too, actually. But I mean, you know, come on, just make me laugh. Yeah, like, yeah, that's all. yeah, yeah. I mean, my, any kind of reservations I have about it are like totally irrational, and mm. just just comes from the fact that there's no pleasing a fan like me. Yeah, like know? they did everything to please you. Exactly, like, exactly. It's it's as good as it could be. Like and Joel is actually directing the episode. Right. It's as good as it could be. The only way it could it could fully please me is to be the old show. I, I saw some people say like, "Oh, Pat Oswalt and Felicia Day are too happy to." be hosts and i'm like at that point you're like nitpicking but at the same time uh a friend of mine was posting on twitter matthew kumar and he was writing like skip this episode watch this episode and i was like can you like quantify that (laughs) as like mst3k like this one is funnier than that one and that was until i watched the star crash episode which is boring because the movie is boring i can quantify all sorts of episodes from the original run yeah yeah i know which ones are good and which ones are bad but yeah there's definitely like season one bad yeah well of course season one is bad because it's so slow yeah but like right now they have it so down pat that the only thing that can really like destroy them is a movie they have nothing to riff on yeah it is a foolproof premise yes people making fun of bad movies come on i mean the there's so many stumbling blocks they could have had they could have done newer movies like shark or stuff like that yeah yeah yeah. and yeah. thankfully they never fell down that hole yeah i like the visual style it's mm-hmm. really kind of replicated well all the skits are all done in like one take and like it has that do. kind of like um almost like kid show quality to it mm-hmm. um i wonder if it will be like finding new young fans yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah, I think so. But like like you said, the format has not changed at all. Like, mm-hmm. they didn't hip it up where it's yeah. not like MST3K, 4,000. And I like Jonah. Yeah, he's yeah. very funny. And yeah. I hear that the bots don't sound the same and it throws people off, but uh, I haven't watched that many episodes, so it doesn't really bother me. The bots me. have already changed voices before on the show, so yeah. you just have to get used to it. Uh, but... Netflix did come up in the film Twitter circles as well because someone wrote an article about how they're buying indie films and burying them, I think. Someone wrote an article. It was David Ehrlich. The <laughs> man, right. the man, the legend. <laughs> someone. K- king of the content. <laughs> That's right. And his article was uh, one of those ones that I read and I go, what is this person talking about? Well, I mean... I guess it's true to the extent that you, for some of these movies, it's like nobody's going to guide you to them. You no. Have, yeah. Um, but, but that presupposes a world where people were guided toward these indie films. Yeah. Like these movies would have made $200,000 <laughs> at the theater anyway. Um, yeah. Uh, and the thing that Netflix is doing is it's actually putting them in people's living rooms, right? Yeah. Netflix is funding Orson Welles' last movie being completed. I mean, I think I think in general they're a force for good. Um, and the idea that, like, is a stumbling block is this kind of, like, weird globalization, one entity. Yeah, and I think the secret subtext of that article was that, like, oh, it's, it's no longer special if I see the movie at Sundance if it comes out on Netflix a month later. To which I would say, that's, that's your fucking problem. You paid to get on a plane to Park City or, or to Cannes. Like. And, like, the idea that, like, Buzz will build from a festival screening, yeah. I think is very kind of intangible, right? Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's tangible to the 200 people that you know and go to all these festivals. Yeah. The only way that a movie makes a kind of impact to a general populace is if it sells for a lot of money yeah. to a company. That's it yeah and I if think. it has big stars and if it's on like page one of netflix yeah uh, and, or like like a, or like a big company like the wine scenes would take it and release it in a million theaters but that doesn't happen anymore because people don't go to theaters that much yeah so in fact probably the biggest you know reach it could have is by going to netflix which is a completely democratic 
process once it's on there. And I mean, to be honest, like, I, I love the theatrical experience. I go out to the movies all the time, but do I need to pay $14 to see The Invitation in a theater? Is it? What? No, I would have liked The Invitation in the theater. That's kind of claustrophobic. It, 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 it would have been fun, but it's like, you know, these movies are shot on digital anyway, and uh, they're very, they're pretty modest. In scale. Like, okay, if you saw it at the Carlton. Yes. $5 like, on a Tuesday? Yeah, th- that'd be fine. But also, like, $14. Like at Lightbox or yeah, something like, like that. Who, Too expensive. Yeah, who gives a shit? Uh, do you think uh, you agree with the backlash, which was like, oh, I didn't mean this article to be that the coastal elites don't get to see movies in theaters. I think maybe he should check his privilege. <laughs> <laughs> the face you made when you said that. 